0: British troops in Ukraine, but it's not boots on the ground. The Chancellor's biggest budget yet, but nothing on defence spending. Post-traumatic stress disorder, what happens when it's the nurse who suffers?
1: I was uh, feeling sick, I was avoiding things, I was living on adrenaline, very tearful.
0: And, hello sailor, the Navy's new uniform... British soldiers have begun a two-month training programme in southern Ukraine. They're teaching battlefield medicine and defensive military tactics to government forces fighting pro-Russian separatists. I'm joined by Michael Evans, who writes for The Times on defence issues, and as usual by our defence analyst, Christopher Lee. Uh, Mike Evans, what do you make of this deployment? Is it as big as it's going to get? (laughs)
2: <laughs> yes, it's it's not exactly a huge deployment. I mean, I think it's quite important that uh, Britain is playing a role. It was announced last month, I think, that they were going to uh, help the Ukrainians. So the trouble is the timing is not brilliant. We've got the so-called Minsk agreement, which has produced a ceasefire. Uh, the Americans, by the way, were supposed to be moving in, in at the end of this month to start a, a training program, and they've delayed it by at least a month. So I think it's a little strange that we're carrying carrying on with it, but 35 troops... Um, you know, they'll be providing important uh, defensive uh, equipment, uh, training, as, as you say. But, uh, no, I don't think it's a, it's a big deal, and we'll, we'll increase the, the number of soldiers uh, in due course, but it, will, it won't uh, get anything above, say, 100.
3: It'll be about 95, I think.
0: Christopher Lee, do you think the timing is strange? The timing's
3: not strange because um, it was decided... Probably a couple of months ago that Britain had to make some contribution here. If you had a large group, like, say, Mike says, 1995, that's fine, and you spread them out. But if you had, let's say, more than a company, I mean, certainly, say, two companies uh, level, then that becomes controversial. That becomes a point that uh, if you get into talks with President Putin or anybody else, they can argue that you're sending uh, Western troops, NATO troops... In, into Ukraine, and that become, becomes an issue. It's interesting, at in the moment, in Brussels, the EU is meeting a sort of summit level, and um, they're talking about uh, what to do about Ukraine, where we go next, uh, where the EU goes next, or, for example, on, on sanctions. And not all EU countries want to continue the sanctions. Some want to drop some of the sanctions because it's hurting financially. But the thing that's fascinating at the moment, uh, and that is that Washington... Washington is starting to sort of think, listen, we must keep rubbing Putin's nose in all this. If we want to get an agreement, and that's what they want to get eventually, at some point they've got to give way on something. Uh, and so, what, what,
0: On what, for example?
3: Uh, perhaps on sanctions, perhaps on sanctions. You think but,
0: there might be a softening of sanctions? Well,
3: there's going to be a softening of sanctions anyway in certain degrees because some of the countries that in the EU who have uh, signed up for sanctions, in fact, are not enforcing them. But the most important part of this is it, it, it really is to make sure that the present, as Mike was saying, the Minsk Agreement, the second Minsk Agreement, because the first one just collapsed, the important thing is to make sure that that holds in some obvious way, some way that people can say, yeah, by and large, this is holding together. It's at that point... And you can start negotiations which may bring some of this to an end but you've got to have an end story you have to say what do we want out of this eventually and that's not yet decided Michael
0: Evans to talk about this, this, this de- British deployment at the moment so they're supplying first aid kits sleeping bags night vision goggles um, more British teams are expected to arrive over the coming weeks is it going to make much difference
2: well it won't make any difference in terms of the sort of uh, military balance if you like clearly it won't make any difference but um, but you know we do have uh, the expertise, and we do have uh, the sort of kit which they actually need—night vision goggles, for example. Uh, but I think it really does need a, to have a more of a balanced strategy towards. Uh, Putin and Ukraine. I think we're doing a lot of sort of little bits here and there. I think it's absolutely vital that the sanctions are maintained because that's the one thing which is hurting Putin It's the one thing which is holding him back and 35 British troops uh, carrying out uh, helping with people with sleeping bags isn't going to make any difference uh, in Putin's eyes.
0: You talk about a balanced strategy. How?
2: Well, I think you you do have to uh, tighten up on sanctions. I don't think you sh- there should be any lessening of sanctions at all because it's the one thing which really gets into uh, the heart and mind of Mr Putin. So I think that is important. And I think you, you know, we should continue to have uh, military training exercises either in Ukraine itself or around uh, in, in neighbours' countries just to remind Putin that... We don't want the Cold War to return, and I'm sure Putin doesn't want the Cold War uh, to return. But nevertheless, NATO still is an organization of substance, and it it needs to make their presence felt in the region. They are doing that to a certain extent. But I think there is a
3: little bit of half-heartedness about it all, particularly from Washington. And that's the, the whole point about the exercises around, for example, in the Baltic. Uh, a naval exercise in the Baltic. It's not going to do anything in military terms, but it's a demonstration, isn't it, Mike? That that, that there is some sort of NATO response. And if you're if you're Putin sitting in Moscow, um, then you think to yourself, well, <clears throat> they're not just sitting back as they have done before. The other thing to remember. Um, and I suppose this is the most important thing is is this idea that if you're eventually going to have to talk to Putin, then you're going to have to talk to him with some strength. And the idea, for example, that sanctions may be hurting them economically, there's no demonstration yet that it's made Putin change his mind. If indeed it is, is his mind that's running the eastern Ukraine operation? It's made no sign he's changing his mind, or is the Minsk agreement exactly that? And therefore, the test is if the Mins- Minsk agreement holds.
0: Mike Evans, do you think that the sanctions can really change President Putin's mind, despite what we might see superficially?
2: Well, combination of sanctions and the drop in oil prices has unquestionably had an impact uh, on the Russian economy, and that's something which Putin would be very wary of. I think w- when I mentioned that some of the sanctions have been a little half-hearted, what I meant was that the, some of the individual sanctions aimed at individual uh, either Russians or people in Crimea has been aimed at, if you like, the sort of outer circle of the Putin uh, regime whereas uh, if uh, the West really wanted to get tough they would focus on perhaps Putin himself and that really would be seen as a, a very bold move. I don't think anyone's prepared to do it mm. but uh, Mr Putin certainly has assets abroad which could be frozen and that really would have an impact.
0: Well let's now talk about yesterday's terrorist attack in Tunisia. It was on a group of Tory from Japan, Italy, Colombia and Australia, and one British woman has died. Uh, Michael Evans, we always think of IS on these occasions. Um, Was it exactly... I mean, no-one's claimed responsibility at the time of this recording, have they?
2: In a sense, it doesn't really matter whether it's got an IS label on it or not. I think the fact is that uh, there is uh, uh, a trend now whereby individuals who've had training or not in Syria... Uh, have come back to their countries, uh, either they're IS-related or they're Al-Qaeda or whatever, and they decide to do their own thing in their own country. So even if there's no uh, IS backing, if you like, for this latest uh, terrorist atrocity... Uh, it, it almost doesn't matter. These, these are individuals who are prepared to take action against people in their own country. And I think this is the, the, the big threat that we all face now. Tunisia hasn't had this uh, effect uh, until now. But, of course, a, a lot of the Tunisian, a lot of the IS uh, original uh, members came from Tunisia, places like Tunisia, Saudi Arabia, etc. So I think that there, there are several thousand Tunisians who have been to Syria and have come back. Uh, so
3: I think it's a, it's a big, big problem for the Tunisian government.
0: Christopher, I mean, we've got
3: to remember that Tunisia was the, uh, was, the was the state in which the so-called Arab Spring first appeared. Um, and yet Tunisia has often been forgotten about this thing. It's, it's a safe, supposedly, a, for example, a safe tourist spot to go to. But you can't look at Tunisia, as, as Mike says, by itself. Next door, Libya. What's going on in Libya is an effect on what's going on in Tunisia. And, the whole, and that is why this, it's spread. You, you could almost get rid of all the names of all the countries, better thing, and say this is the size of the operation. Now you go right down to sub-Saharan Africa, uh, where Boko Haram has actually affiliated itself. Uh, with IS, so it actually doesn't matter who's doing it. It is, it is a question whether Western intelligence services, most certainly, and whether they have a response to what is going on.
0: The Chancellor, George Osborne, has again been challenged on defence spending following yesterday's budget.
3: What we have committed to is the, the long-term budget the military really needs, which is the defence equipment budget, £160 billion of expenditure in that, which enables us to buy the latest equipment
4: for our brave men and women...
0: That was George Osborne speaking to the BBC this morning. Well, BFBS reporter James Hurst joins us now from Westminster. James, any surprises from Mr Osborne and what could it mean for defence?
4: Well, I don't think it was any surprise that in the budget speech itself there was not really any mention of defence. This was a pre-election budget which is seen as being about winning votes and either giving money to or taking money away from defence that would not have been a vote winner so he stayed away from the defence budget. I think the surprise for some certainly the interesting thing uh, yesterday is that at the moment the economy is going better for the Chancellor than it was looking like a year ago a combination of low inflation slightly higher GDP growth it gave him about £5 billion to, to play with if you like. It potentially gives him wriggle room, but don't think that is going to have any impact on defence spending in George Osborne's plan. He says he's going to stick to his plan. Uh, He will simply be able to start increasing public spending a year earlier from 2019 if he becomes Chancellor again, but at the moment his plan is for for more cuts up to that point.
0: Uh, Some more LIBOR cash available for forces charities.
4: Yes, of course, that's not taxpayer money. This is from fines on city institutions. £75 million were announced yesterday. £65 million goes to forces-related charities. Uh, there was £10 million, for example, for the regimental charities of every charity that served in Afghanistan. £5 million for World War I commemorations. Uh, half a million for a new Iraq and Afghanistan memorial in central London. The biggest slice, a third of it, £25 million for a new veterans' health care fund for the oldest veterans including nuclear test veterans, not specifically for them. Now, this looks a bit like a compromise. Uh, The British Nuclear Test Veterans Association say they welcome it, but they still want some questions answered. They've got a meeting at Downing Street next week. They say they want to fully measure the provision against what they say are their very reasonable and decent claims.
0: All right, James Hurst in Westminster. Thank you. Uh, Mike Evans, This 2% of GDP being spent on defence that everybody is talking about. Does it really matter?
2: I think what matters mostly is really what they spend the money on. Two percent is important in the sense that this country, like the rest of NATO allegedly, has committed itself to two percent of GDP. Uh, You know, there are very, very few. In fact, I think there's just Greece and Estonia, apart from America, of course, and ourselves who who stick to this two percent. So if we didn't stick to two percent and went to 1.9 percent, let's say, I don't think it would make any difference on the defence spending of other countries in NATO. After all, they haven't taken much notice of the fact that we're 2% at the moment. But the fact is, and particularly if you look at it from Washington, 2% is regarded as the the absolute, uh, the, the, the correct threshold for spending on defence. And mm. if the country, this country's economy is improving, then obviously the GDP will rise. And so you could say uh, that provided the economy is flourishing, then you don't absolutely need to have the 2% because 1.9% of a, an improving GDP is better than a 2% of a falling economy. Mm. Nevertheless, uh, I think it is an important pledge which this country has given and I think it would be seen as uh, a mistake, really, in most people's eyes, certainly in the eyes of generals in this country and in, uh, in America, if we drop below it.
0: Uh, Micah, there's a chap here called Christopher Lee who wrote to your newspaper this week in the, uh, in the comments page um, talking about this very issue. And here he is in the studio, Christopher. <laughs>
3: Excellent. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, my, my, point, my point is very simple, is what Mike's just, just said. It's not. You know, come on, let's spend two percent. It's what you spend it on, and I think that is going to that is going to increasingly take over the argument, or can be used against the argument of two percent if it doesn't happen. But the most important part of this is this: government's job is to go out and say, "Look, here's our strategy, foreign policy strategy in particular, and home defence tra- strategy. Now, the military, what is it going to take?" to make some guarantees for that strategy. Not all of them, but some guarantees. You then go back and say, right, can I do this? That is what defence spending is really all about. Mm -hmm. And, And I think the 2%, 2%, as Mike says, you know, if you spend it badly, then why did you bother to spend it at all? Um... Can I just say th- one thing quickly on the budget? The budget is not the place for defence spending. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not like a department where, you say, National Health Service, you can say we've well, we given X more, more percentage, more, more money to, let's say, health or or, 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 or or people's care. It doesn't happen that way, so it's not the place for us to see it. So we shouldn't get too upset if it doesn't appear.
0: Uh, Mike, we, we've been here before, though, haven't we? Uh, because in the 1970s there were similar arguments about defence spending.
2: I'm afraid this always comes around full circle. Um, I've seen it happen again and again and again, and it, it it invariably is timed with the ending of a particular war. So we're no longer involved uh, in Afghanistan, and therefore people immediately think, well, we won't be doing that again, so we have every reason to, to cut back. But, of course, the... You know, the world changes. Part of the government's responsibility is not to deal with the short term or even the medium term, but to look ahead to see what the major threats are going to be. I think it would be a mistake, as it has been in the past, to decide that you can have a peace dividend, because there's no reason for a peace dividend right now. And I think we need to keep up our defence spending as much as possible. But the key thing is to show that you are a committed member of NATO, and particularly... A committed member to the United States because they're getting pretty fed up I think now with the news from London which seems to be nothing more nothing ex- except uh, cutting back and not really having uh, an army uh, of a decent size
4: All
0: right, Mike Evans from the Times Newspaper thank you for your time today Still to come what's it like to suffer from PTSD we hear from an army nurse who's got it and the Navy's got a new rig This is BFBS Cigarette. The Army has been running a major deployment exercise on Salisbury Plain to test 3rd Division's Armoured Task Force capability. Well, Major Lawrence Roach is there. Uh, good to speak to you today, at Major Roach. Just describe what's happening around you, what you can see.
5: Yes, hello, Kate. Well, this is the combined arms demonstration phase of our month-long exercise here on Salisbury Plain. And today really is a chance for us to show off our capabilities and show off um, what we would do um, if... 3rd Division was required to deploy on our operations. And so we're going to see troops from uh, 12th Armoured Infantry Brigade based down here on Salisbury Plain, uh, and they're going to have their battle group on the area. Uh, We're going to see lots of Challenger 2 tanks, uh, the warriors uh, from the Yorks, uh, as well as uh, the Royal Engineers who have come here to uh, demonstrate Uh, a a, a series of stands, uh, a simulated attack, a simulated defence and an obstacle minefield breach uh, for the benefit of one brigade, uh, because it's one brigade who will be the ready troops next year uh, and what they're going to be watching is 12 Brigade, um, the British Army's ready troops uh, who would be required to go on operations um, if we were sent overseas today.
0: So what's actually going on at the moment? I can hear vehicle noises and lots of voices...
5: Uh, so what's happening right now is we've got the, uh, the, the spectators have just taken to the stand and uh, I'm just witnessing uh, some warriors who are just breaking up from their liga. Uh, they're about to uh, start the first stand, uh, which is the defence. Uh, and so we, we've got uh, troops who have taken up their trenches uh, and the, uh, the warriors are about to uh, attack this uh, simulated enemy.
0: So uh, the scale of this exercise is called exercise tractable, isn't it? Uh, how, How big is it?
5: It's been going on for the last three or four weeks and what we've seen is uh, 1,800 soldiers uh, and just short of 600 vehicles, including all of our heavy armour, uh, and we've deployed it to Salisbury Plain from a number of different locations. Uh, we brought it down from rail from Catterick in North Yorkshire uh, and we've broken it out of barracks from uh, across Salisbury Plain and the idea is, is we, we want to test our ability to deploy uh, if we if we have to get it off the island of the United Kingdom.
0: And Major Roach, this was done Sorry. for real, wasn't it, uh, it, for Iraq and Afghanistan, but hasn't the whole political and military transition to deployment in terms of reference changed since then?
5: Well, I mean, you're quite right to reference Iraq and Afghanistan, because of course uh, for a whole generation of soldiers we've not really had the opportunity to practice uh, a deployment on this scale Uh, because you'll appreciate when we were in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, the troops that went through the six-month rotations they were were taking over the fleet of vehicles that was already in theatre. Uh, And so what we wanted to rehearse on this particular exercise was our ability to deploy it in the first place. Uh, What we're going to see is this is the first in a series of annual exercises. Uh, And so we're hoping to get slicker and slicker at doing just this. I'll
0: let you get back to it, Major Lawrence Roach. Thank you very much for your time today. Christopher, let's uh, look at events elsewhere around the world this week. Uh, Syria, four years this week uh, since the unrest there, the conflict began.
3: Yeah, and it doesn't seem to be going anywhere, but there is a movement in Washington in the State Department. Uh, John Kerry, the equivalent to our Foreign foreign Secretary, is starting to hint that he, John Kerry, is probably going to have to have talks with President Assad. Mm. Because unless you bring Assad into this... You can't fix Syria in any way. But it's the first time we've heard that the Americans are thinking that way.
0: And um, we have a result in the election in Israel.
3: Well, yeah, it was supposed to have been a, a close wrong thing, but. Uh, Not so
0: close after all. Well,
3: Bibi Netanyahu is back there with his Likud party. It was the Likud party which uh, adopted the whole attitude, it's very right wing, adopted the whole attitude towards Iran. And they're saying to the Americans, they are, we won, we've got, we got a vote behind us, uh, unless you fix the, the Iranian uh, new." clear talk so they come out to our uh, to our satisfaction in other words our defense we could have a go at them the other thing he said no deal on two states with palestine and that seems to put and the he whole has used gaza the, thing
0: he has used the whole state of the middle east and islamic state as a reason for saying that this is off the table now
3: that's right he can stand there put his arms up in the air and he says now game listen, changer. see where we are we didn't We tell you this, and there is every indication that the people are behind him.
0: If the, if these negotiations do falter, if there's no progress on this uh, so-called two-state solution, what do you think um, the implications might be long-term?
3: Oh, more... I mean, the Pal- Pal- Palestinians just have to go on living as they do, and then every so often there will be an incursion, there will be a, a conflict, and we'll have another Gaza, as we did in 2014 with the disasters.
0: The Life-changing injuries from the war in Afghanistan are often very visible, but not so obvious are the mental scars. This week over on Forces TV, we've been looking at the effects of post-traumatic stress disorder. Earlier, I spoke to Kerry Peelin, who has been an army nursing officer for 12 years and was deployed to Afghanistan and Iraq and began to experience PTSD during her third tour in Afghanistan in 2012. I asked her about how her symptoms first started to show.
1: It was towards the end of my tour in 2012. um, I started to notice that I was very... um, uh, very anxious all the time, I was uh, feeling sick, I was avoiding things, I was living on adrenaline um, very tearful um, and I didn't want to see people go to places, um, I was avoiding things.
0: Now I know you don't want to talk specifically about what ca- what you know caused mm. it, mm. but tell me about how quickly it was diagnosed because some people spend years before post-traumatic stress disorder is is diagnosed. It was pretty obvious when I got back that I wasn't functioning properly
1: um, both um, at home and uh, at work so uh, I had a lot of support from friends and colleagues and my husband and really they sort of pushed me forward to go and get help and treatment. It hadn't crossed my mind that I had PTSD until the doctor sat there and said I think you have PTSD.
0: And Part of your treatment and your recovery is about recognising something called triggers. What are they? And they're different for every person, aren't they? Yeah, your trigger is very much related to the incident that happened
1: and um, events in and around that time. So um, for for my trigger was very much in intensive care because that was my job and that's where an incident happened. So that's where I felt threatened and I thought I was going to die. So um, my incidents are in and around the noises within intensive care, certain voices but also uh, certain noises for the next 24, 48 hours after the incident also has an effect. Uh,
0: And this for you might mean that you were were in the shower at Mm -hmm. home and it could take you back to Afghanistan. Yeah,
1: yeah, my shower has um, an extractor fan and that reminded me or reminded my brain of being back in Afghanistan, the generator noises, the constant hum out there. How do you learn to deal with the effect that that has on you? Um... What happens initially is uh, you get a trigger, you live on adrenaline, you avoid, you f- um, you just don't function. After that, once you start getting the appropriate treatment and you go on the correct medication, um, then you learn to face those triggers and you get treatment. Um, and then you also learn to ground yourself as well. So what do you say to yourself? Um, you have to tell yourself that you're not in danger, that you're no longer in Afghanistan. You're very much, you bring yourself into the room that you are in. So in this room now, I'd be telling myself that I was, there was a table that's got purple on it. There's a big microphone, uh, which has no relation to being in Afghanistan at all. And you believe that, that having PTSD at, has made you a danger at times to yourself and to other people. How so? Um, You get, and and I got very, very angry, very aggressive. Um, I was aggressive towards my children. I was aggressive towards my husband. Um, I started to drink heavily. And um, because you can't function properly, you know, simple daily life things like driving your car to work, functioning, at uh, because I'm an intensive care nurse, functioning at work as well would have been a no-no because I couldn't function, so
0: therefore you're a danger. Do you think, to some extent, because of the job you do, that you've been able to deal with it perhaps more readily than other people who've developed PTSD in the armed forces.
1: Yes and no. Uh, yes, because um, I have a medical mindset, so I um, I understand things that my CPN would talk to me about. Your CPN um, is the community mental health nurse, mm. um, and so i I do in. I do understand certain things. However. I um, am a patient the same as anybody else and I'm as vulnerable
0: as anybody else. But quite a positive story from Mm. you because you've kept your job. Uh, What would you like to say to other people who may be suffering the same symptoms as you?
1: Go for help, absolutely. Go for help or if you recognise anybody else with any symptoms, go for help, get treatment because, uh, you know, I'm 42 and I've potentially got another 40 years or longer to live and if you don't get treatment, your life's miserable. It really is. And how's your life now? I'm fantastic. Really, really good. I've got an amazing husband, I've got two beautiful children and I'm, I'm back at work, which is, which is fantastic.
0: That was Kerry Peelin talking to me earlier and you can see more in-depth reports about PTSD all this week on Forces TV. Go online to forces.tv for details. Um, Christopher, what do you think when you hear that kind of thing?
3: I start thinking about the other half of the family mm. and, and, and how they managed to cope with it, and in, in fact, if you indeed you do cope with it, you know. I, I know one person with this uh, with this huge, huge problem. A, it wasn't di- uh, diagnosed in time, and also the husband didn't actually understand it. Yeah, and she he had to work out when it was a when it was a bad cow day or a bad stress day, and that she, just made it funnier. But she not also told long.
0: she told me of a moment where the aggression was coming out. She was shaking her little boy, and he just looked at her at her contorted face and says mummy you're scaring me
5: yeah
3: and she'd already he'd already, and he was he was talking about what in, in some ways what uh, archbishop welby was talking about at the uh, at the St Paul's thing uh, when he was saying that, that the children that pine they have to get used to the returning a uh, sort of father or mother and if they can't cope with that plus the stress it becomes quite traumatic for them
0: now, the Navy has got a new rig, or, or uniform, to you and I. It's working clothes, light blue top, dark blue trousers, it's all changing. The new rig is modern materials, thermal layers and new badges. We've tweeted it, you know, on SitRep. Um, Christopher, what do you think of it?
3: Well, the, well, I thought that the, uh, the rating, uh, or the senior rate that was modelling this, was rather stout. Um, in fact he was a tubby little fellow actually. You're complaining
0: then, about the modelling of it are you? I am. How it, shallow you are let's just I, talk about the uniform
3: No but I am shallow <laughs> um, it, it, when it comes to this, I mean having had to wear it for I mean, yes, years, this is replacing the so-called <laughs> Would number you fours, wear this one? Uh number eights yes, I mean you wear it I'd like it to see you modelling it, it. it. Uh, but I, the only thing I'm, I'm sort of bothered about is the baseball cap they're actually going into baseball caps they'll be into hoodies next um, um, but it is fascinating, I mean, the Navy have this thing, the rig, uh, for example the one we, we all see, you know, see the captain walking around in his sort of blazer type thing with <laughs> the gold buttons which is his number, his number fives and they number them all. These are number eights or number fours, mm. the of wor- the working rigs. And I think that then they get the sailors with the collars you know, the collars with the, the sort of blue collars and the stripes on them mm-hmm. uh, they're four and a half rigs and then when they're in ordinary clothes they're square rigs. And if you put the badges of rank on your shoulders going the wrong way, i.e., you know, a little curl and a couple of bars, and they're going the wrong way, it's known as going astern. Now, all this has been trashed. Mm in one demonstration, because the badge of who you are, the badge of rank now goes rather like the army does, mm. somewhere down by the belly button now, so you can get a good look at it.
0: I like your rig today. What would you describe yours as, a number what? Uh,
3: well, actually, this is my number one Oxfam. <laughs> <laughs> I promise you, it's seven quid in Oxfam, but it was in Bath, and the reason for that is that rather rich people die in Bath, and so you can always get, you can always get a good suit for seven quid in Oxfam.
0: Oh, there you go, tip of the week, and that's all we have time for. My thanks to all of our guests. If you'd like to join the debates, we're on Twitter. You can follow us at Sitrep. Remember, you can listen again on our website, com slash sitrep, or download the podcast from iTunes. We're back at the same time next week. I'm off to, off to Bath, I think. News.
5: News. Sports, sports and music, music for the British forces this is BFBS radio 2. Radio
0: 2.